This is Lend Me Your Ear. Conversations worth hearing. With Liam Halligan. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ear. A few years ago, the British historian James Barr wrote a line in the sand, a riveting book on how British and French diplomats remade the map of the Middle East during and after the First World War. Barr tells a tale of hubris and political skullduggery, as two colonial powers cooked up the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement, dividing the region by drawing a line across Syria from the Mediterranean to the Persian frontier. Now Barr's written a follow-on book, Lords of the Desert, about the UK and America competing for influence across the Arab world during and after the Second World War. People have been fighting over Syria for as long as we have written records, he tells me, as we discuss post-colonialism and pipeline politics. Amidst today's tragic Syrian conflict, with foreign powers still vying to control the region, James Barr's beautifully written books are of huge relevance. I began by asking him about his very first trip to Syria. I'd been to Syria once before, in 2002, just at the moment when Bashar al-Assad was there, he was a young man, people still at that point had great hopes about what he might do and that there might be some kind of change. He was part of a dynastic... Uh, line, but he was generally quite modern, and the West was quite well disposed towards him. They, they were at that moment, exactly, and there were sort of signs of reform. He was the president of the Syrian Computer Society and all this sort of stuff, and people were, and there were cash machines. So suddenly you could actually, you could withdraw cash, I think, I think that's true. <laughs> so, you know, great change. Uh, and of course all that disappeared um, in the space of the next few years, but at that moment it was an exciting place. I'd always wanted to go to Syria because of all the castles there. <laughs> I've loved castles since I was a small boy and I remember asking my parents in the 80s can we go to Syria please mum and dad and they kind of looked at me as if I was no we're mad. going to Benidorm <laughs> <laughs> exactly it was a bit too uh, edgy for them but when so once Assad got in it looked like there was a detente going on and suddenly tourists could get in there yeah. and I went and I was absolutely captivated by it uh, and I sort of put that to one side I wrote a book about Lawrence after that trip and then I came back to the story in 2008 when I was looking for a new book to write about. And the thing that really interested me about the Lawrence story is how anti-French he was. Because there were things, everyone knows that Lawrence was pro-Arab. But what they don't realise was the other side of Lawrence was that he hated the French. He absolutely was determined to keep the French out of that part of the world. Even in Peter O'Toole's famous depiction that came out it in, does in come the out. movie. It does come out. It does come out in that. But it, it just struck me as really interesting. And... I started doing the research, and in fact, the other, I sort of hit the other end of the story. So the book starts with Sykes-Picot, with these British and French diplomats carving up that part of the world. But it ends in the 1940s when the French decided to support, um, choose your phrase carefully here, but Zionist terrorism. So essentially, whether they were terrorists or freedom fighters, call them what you will, they were the people trying to boot the British out of Palestine at the end of the 1940s. And the French were backing them. They were giving them weapons and money uh, to do this, and also helping uh, um, the Jews who survived the Holocaust get back from Europe yeah. to Pal- get from Europe to Palestine. And I was really interested by that story about how you start with this deal to try and fix the Middle East, and then you end up with this, this um, story of the French undermining an ally for their own purposes. And, and so that became the book, that became a line in the sand. And uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, at that point, when the book came out in 2011, the, uh, the uprisings in Deraa had started, 
the regime, as it now was seen, or idea that Assad was going to be the saviour of Syria had, had evaporated. Blown as, out of the water. As he sent the secret police in, you know, sent in these agents provocateurs to stir up the demonstrations so that they could use... And the Arab Spring was a, part, part, a populist uprising against Assad in Syria. It sparked in the exactly. Maghreb, but... When it spread to Syria, exactly. And I'd love to say I could have foreseen all this stuff, but I went in 2009 for the second time. I spent another fortnight in Syria. And I saw none of it. Yeah. Um, the, the country had moved on in that seven years in between that seven-year gap, uh, and it was great to go again. But it still looked to be this stable police state. So, for for new readers, if you like, let's just lay out this line in the sand. You had Sykes and Pico to rather junior British and French um, officials, diplomats, and they negotiated a line across what is modern Syria today in order for the French to protect their interests. They had lots of investments in the Ottoman Empire, of course, banks, railways, all the rest of it, and the British to protect their interests, which were partly about getting Iranian, Persian, as it was then, oil out of Persia and across Syria to the Med. And how does... The negotiations that Sykes and Pico had manifest itself on the map that we see today. Well, if you, you go to the National Archives here in Kew in southwest London, you can see the minutes of the meeting where he set out what he wanted to do. And he tells Lloyd George uh, and, uh, and others. Um, so this is Sir Mark Sykes? This is Sir Mark Sykes, in fact. And how old is he at this point? He is. 36 years old. That's quite a, not he's a very he's, senior he's guy. He's a young guy. He'd been elected Tory MP for Hull in 1911. He'd sealed his reputation in 1915 with the publication of a big, thick book called The Caliph's Last Heritage. And that made him Mr. Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And by the end of 1915, there, the British had a problem with their French allies, which I'll just come back to in a second. But Sykes came in and said, look, I can fix this. We just, need to, we just need to sort out Syria, and that will provide the sort of diplomatic sticking plaster that we need. And he said, in fact, it, it was to the Prime Minister, uh, who was then Asquith and his colleagues, they, they summoned him in December 1915, and he said, I should like to draw a line from the E of Acre to the last K in Kirkuk. <laughs> so you get amazing. You yeah. know that there was a map on the table, yeah. and he like, finger swished across it. So it's across what is modern Syria into so Iraq, a, a diagonal line that ran exactly. It doesn't follow the only bit of the modern border that it, it influenced is the uh, is the Syria Western Iraq border and the Jordanian border as well. But so that diagonal line that you get going across the the Syrian desert uh, is the only vestige of this concept that listeners like, may want to refer to a map at this point yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, but he, but and it went started at the the um the sea coast at, at acre the old crusader port and went right to the to the persian border as the british called it then and in fact it wasn't all about oil it was really to create a buffer it was what sykes uh was trying to do at that point in time was what britain wanted to do they wanted to keep any foreign competitor away from India. That was oh, right. priority number yeah. one. Absolute, that was the key thing. So it was keep the French, keep the Russians, who were their allies, away from India. And this deal was being done in the expectation of victory. So the fact is, if the Germans had won the war, then this deal would have been meaningless. It would have yeah. been torn up by, by the, the Germans as the winners. But it was thinking ahead, if we win the war, then actually our biggest rivals in this part of the world are are our current allies, yeah. France and How Russia. How interesting. So 
the French wanted um, a chunk of Syria, largely for sort of sentimental reasons. They'd had this, as you said, long um, presence there as the protector of Christians and uh, a strong influence in Lebanon. And uh, But then they also had these investments they wanted to protect. And so they were worried that if the Ottoman Empire um, kind of hit the buffers, what would happen to their, their investments in all of sort of the ports and the railways and so on that they um, put money into. So how did these two junior fi- officials sell this to their, to their seniors, to the likes of Lloyd George, to the likes of Clemenceau? Uh, and were they always... Did they go with a kind of settled idea between them? Your book talks about there's some antagonism between them, but do you think they really respected each other? I think, I mean, George Pico was the better of the two negotiators in some ways. Uh, what he did was he got the British over a barrel. Because the, the, the point about this, and in a way it's the, the fact, it, it's, this is what it illustrates about Syria, this was not about Syria. This was about a, a problem in the, the Entente Cordiale, in the British-French alliance on the Western Front. The two, the, the two of them, the British and the French, could not agree about the tactics that they would follow to win the war. And the British wanted to go east and to try and get knock the Ottomans out of the war, and the French were suspicious that that was just Britain up to its old sort of empire building yeah. and thought that was a, a major diversion. For the French, the priority was get the Germans off yeah, of our course, soil, yeah. just get <laughs> them out. We, you know, we face massive public pressure because mm. we're failing to win the war. Mm. Anything else was seen as a diversion. What Pico did brilliantly was to sort of play on this British nervousness that the Entente was actually quite a shaky edifice. And he said, when he realised what the British were trying to do, he sort of said, well, we just won't tolerate that. We, you know, we've spent so much blood and treasure in, in, uh, in our own country. You can't possibly expect us you know, to accept the, sort of the deal that you're putting through. So, in fact, the, the line that Sykes talked about was a compromise. He, he'd actually been angling for more yeah. of the Middle East than that. Um, but in the end, he, they were, the British were so concerned about what the French reaction would be if they pushed as hard as they'd originally wanted to that they decided that the best thing was to, to compromise. And they ended up with this, this diagonal line. And you can see the map today. There's two copies of it. Uh, one's in Paris and one's here in London. Wow. And uh, it's all done in, in blue and red pencil. And, of course, the rhetoric was, uh, we're the nice Western European powers and we're freeing the Arab world from the Ottoman tyranny. But it wasn't freedom to do practice their own self-determination in a sort of Woodrow Wilson sense, was it? it? We're still pretty much at the zenith, or just beyond the zenith of British and French imperial power, right? We're, we're just beyond the zenith, mm. because if, it, if they had been uh, proud of what they'd done, it would have been an open... They'd have made it an open agreement, yeah. but it wasn't. It was a secret deal because... A stitch-up. Because it, it was a stitch-up, because it was a sort of 19th-century-style ruler-on-the-map yeah. job. And by then already, Woodrow Wilson was setting the kind of the trend of public opinion saying you've got to have self-determination, yeah. everyone needs to decide what they're going to do. And, and of course, this, this, didn't, this didn't even pay lip service to that. If you read what people understood by frontiers at that time, 100, 110 years ago or so, uh, there's a famous lecture by Lord Curzon where he says basically anyone who controls the coast controls yeah. the hinterland. Yeah. And that's presumed. It's a sort of assumption. So, I mean, yeah, baked into the Sykes-Picot agreement is this assumption that we control the coasts and de facto we will control the Arabs. And when you look at contemporary events in Syria, when you see the, the great powers, if you like, the Americans, the Brits and the French still just about clinging on to that status. The Russians, of course, huge influence across Syria. 
Do you feel that your historical uh, investigations inform what you see today? And do you think modern day policymakers should be taking more account of the history? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's difficult. You've got to be, you've got to be careful. I don't think that Sykes-Picot explains every, all the ills of, of that part of the world. What I think is that Sykes-Picot is a symptom of something very, very basic, which is that Syria is one of these transit states that's on the edge of two different zones, three different zones. It's at that crossroads. It's a made-up country in some it's, ways, It's right? a made-up country, but people have been fighting over Syria for as long as we have written records whether it's the Assyrians and the Hittites or the Greeks and the Persians or the, the Ottomans and the Mamluks or the French and the British or now the Russians and the Qataris and the Saudis and the Americans. You know, you can go right back to the dawn of recorded time and that's why the country is so archaeologically rich. I mean, the irony is, of course, is that ISIS has been funding itself by digging up these sort of layers of, previous conflicts. of these conflicts that have been themselves been smashed down by by subsequent conquerors, you've got this layer upon layer of history, and it's difficult. So, I mean, we call, we call it the, you know, the, the Sykes-Picot settlement, because although Sykes and Picot didn't conceive the exact frontiers that exist today, they basically said, we're going to divide this and rule it between us, and that's exactly what then happened for the next 30 years. And although the borders don't quite correspond, the, the fundamental concept is is there. But when you and I, as intrigued, open-minded people, travel to places like Syria and Iran and we meet with educated, intelligent people, it doesn't take long before the resentment comes out, yeah? If they, if they feel you're an open-minded, independent thinker, which you yeah. cert most certainly are, people say, but, you know, how do you think we feel? You were carving up our country almost within living memory. Yes, look exactly. At the, look at the influence. And to that extent, don't you think there are still reverberations? Do we sometimes need to be more mindful about how recently we were just telling people what to do? How recently we were imperialist and quite aggressive in this part of the world? Yes. It's, it's not that long ago. A you know, hundred years is, is not that long ago. And people who were you know, intimately involved in the period that I wrote about in a line in the sand was still alive just as the book was coming wow, out. There amazing. were one, you know, one or two amazing. people who I tried to get hold of, but they were, you know, they were very ancient. But it, you know, it's not that long. And you can go and you go to Lebanon today. And I'm, a few years ago, I met the son of the the Lebanese president who was locked up by the French when they tried to sort of engineer a reverse coup in 1943, and he remembered those, you know, those. Those yeah. moment that evening, that night, yeah. very, very well. It was his father who was sort of rushed off to, to sort of kidnapped and taken off to prison. So exactly. So I think we. It's very difficult. I think for Britain and France, it's very difficult from our position to sort of play a very um, sort of well to be seen as honest brokers to play a big role in some sort of regional settlement. I think that's tricky. I think we can help individual countries. Uh, but I think people haven't forgotten that, the legacy and the history. Unless you're a pacifist, uh, and I'm not a pacifist, I can see the argument for well-meant intervention. You know, when somebody's uh, using chemical weapons on, on, and breaking UN conventions all over the place, I don't think the West should completely abrogate itself of any responsibility. Yet, don't we need to be more mindful of this recent history 
and pay a bit more lip service at the very least and genuine contrition about this recent history in order to build our credibility to play a responsible role in the region going forward. The, yes, but the difficulty with doing that is how hard it is to sort of... I mean, contrition's one thing, but undoing, as some people would say, the damage that's been done is another. And the key issue here is the, is the agreement that, in a way, was the attempt to fix one of the loopholes of Sykes-Picot. So the, the thing that Sykes-Picot failed to deal with was Palestine, because Sykes and Picot couldn't agree about it. So although there was the acre to Kirk, it was about the same time as the Balfour Declaration, so it was, right? It was, so it was the, the Balfour Declaration followed a year later. Yeah, so yeah. Sykes and Picot, but they couldn't deal with Palestine. It was just too hot to handle. Well, it, yeah, exactly. They both wanted it. Sykes wanted yeah. it for strategic reasons, because he wanted this sort of buffer zone, this cordon across the, the Middle East. Uh, Pico wanted it because, again, that sort of that old view that the French kind of were were the sort of protectors of, of Christendom, and they couldn't agree on it. So they agreed that it would have it would have an international administration, but neither of them liked that as a, a fix. It was yeah. it was bad. So immediately Sykes went off and started speaking to the Zionists, and that po- that plays into what Woodrow Wilson was talking about because the Zionists had been talking for twenty thirty years about yes. a, a Jewish state in Palestine, but they got nowhere that yeah. far. Uh, but already Sykes could see that what he just signed up to was pretty old-fashioned, rather difficult to defend, but perhaps if Britain threw its weight behind somebody else and said, oh, we'll, you know, we'll champion your aspirations to yeah. have your own country, then maybe that would, that would also deal with the American concern because, of course, then there was a, you know, well, it's a kind of constant of British foreign policy. There's the assumption that, that the Jewish vote in the States has a huge effect on domestic even, politics. Even politics. in the early 20th century, yeah, well, it was... And, well, yeah. and far more recent than that. And and so this kind of idea that, well, if we support the Jews, then that will that the, the Americans won't be able to criticise us, so we'll get our way that way. So it's but, almost... So, so I mean, just, but just to come back, so so it's all right for us to say, well, we shape the borders of your, um, of your region, and, and people might say, yeah, OK, well, that's not great, but but that's how it is and there are plenty of other countries around the world that have been shaped in the same way that have been more successful um, but then they'll say ah but you also created Palestine you created a Jewish state in Palestine and that gets you into a completely different and deep territory and the whole question of how do you resolve the Israel-Palestinian conflict um, which no one has yet managed to do and here we years are on. a century on and here we are a century on so, so it's tricky we are a century on. Give us your historian's perspective. And you, you have written a very racy history, if I may say. So. It's a work of real scholarship and there's plenty of footnotes and you clearly spent a lot, lot of time in the archives. But you've written a very narrative history. But you strike me as the kind of historian who would watch the 10 o'clock news. Uh, and I want to know what's going through your mind when you watch the 10 o'clock news about the current events going on in Syria. The great powers once again locking horns, the intractability of the problem, learned op-eds on pipeline politics, the connections between geopolitical and commercial imperatives. So how do you see the Syrian conflict now? There's an awful lot, isn't there? I mean, there's some very basic things. So when people talk about the Ghouta, the area of eastern Damascus... So this has been the last stronghold until recently of the anti-Assad forces. Exactly. Now, this was the same area. It was a centre of resistance to the French back in the 1920s. And at that point, this area was essentially... um, It was kind of orchards and a very easy place to hide. Yeah, but close to the capital. Close to the capital, very fertile. There were 
um, essentially springs there feeding the capital as well. Yeah. And the rebels use this as their sort of undergrowth. It is now effectively like an urban jungle rather than, right. a, than a literal jungle. Right. And very poor people live there, people who have not much to lose. And of course, it's an area that the rebels have been able to, to colonise. So that's just yeah. one very, very interesting. I just find it fascinating that this is an area that has been associated with resistance twice now. Uh, Onto the pipe, the politics, the pipeline stuff is fascinating. Yeah, why is Syria so strategic? Why is it matter? Clearly, the Russians have got Tartus. Clearly, as you know, the Russians call the Middle East Blizny Vostok, the, the Near East. This is their backyard. They want influence there. And if you go to Syria this to this day, I, I don't speak Arabic, but you can knock around Damascus speaking Russian, and, and, and a lot of people above 50 speak, speak pretty good Russian because they learnt it in school. But why is it still so important to the Americans and to the Russians on the one hand and the Iranians and Gulf states, particularly the Qataris trying to get their gas out, that they have that access to Syria? Because it's a natural, it's a natural route from east to west. It's on the route. And actually, rewinding just a half a second, to explain that diagonal line that Sykes drew, you have to understand that before the First World War broke out, he took a long journey down the Euphrates, which is the natural route across the world. So before the Suez Canal, but even after the Suez Canal, the quick way across the Middle East was to land uh, the sort of the crook where Turkey joined Syria, cross the mountains there, uh, make your way to Aleppo, to pick up your shopping there, go straight to the Euphrates, down the Euphrates, past Raqqa, past Fallujah, Baghdad, Basra, and then you're on your way eastwards. And that was the route that Sykes took. And he went to he went to Raqqa and he How went was to Fallujah. James, I mean, was he, he, he was oh, he was he was a very I mean, expensive traveller. He he unlike Lawrence, so Lawrence or? horses and, and everything. But the, the important thing about understanding Sykes never went anywhere kind of on his own. Whereas Lawrence did all this as a student and he arrived in Beirut with very little money and he bought a pistol and he walked around Syria. And then at the end, he sold his pistol back at a profit when he left. Sykes was, um, his father was uh, a baronet. They owned lots of land in the Wolds. And he turned up with plenty of cash, and he basically would splash the cash. He did the sort of Jules so he would, so he would borrow gentleman. Exactly. So he had like sort of 15 horses and dragon Lots of steamer and, trunks. Exactly. <laughs> and, and in fact, Gertrude Bell, one of the other, the sort of other uh, celebrities of this time in the, the world of Middle Eastern exploration, said that she would never travel in his wake because she knew that the prices would have risen <laughs> as he kind of went through. Everyone's expectations went up. But, so, but he made this big journey. In a way, that was one of the journeys that fed into the big fat book that made that his name. That was the basis of his reputation. Yeah. But if you look at the angle of the Euphrates, that's doing a, a, a northwest southeast direction. His line from Kirkuk bisects that at right angles near enough. It's clear that he saw the Euphrates as the natural path. But he's not the only person who's done that. That, that river's been like that for Indeed. millennia. And... You know, that helps explain why that area around Aleppo is such contested territory. And, and one of the things that strikes me is that, of course, ISIS called their propaganda magazine Dabik, which is the name of a little village a bit east of Aleppo, where they think that the apocalyptic final battle between Rome and Islam will, will happen. And actually, to give them their due, you can see that's not a bad punt for a kind of yeah. location for a battle, because there have been a dozen crucial battles within 50 miles of that, 100 miles of that spot over the last four millennia. Empires and armies have a habit of clashing there. And actually, so it's not 
it doesn't entirely surprise me that you see today you've got the Turks in that part of the world and the Russians in there in a big way and the Americans and the Kurds and, and everyone. So, you know, this is, this is one of the sort of, it's one of those tectonic zones of geopolitics. And how do you see what was the Persian role, the Iranian role in the Syrian conflict? Do you give much credence to what we read about the Gulf states being particularly interested in Syria as a transit state? Well, this is the thing. I think this, this, this is the big issue that's not well covered. So Syria became a pipeline state in the 1930s, first of all. The British owned the Iraq Petroleum Company at that time, but the French had a minor stake and so did the Americans. They built a pipeline that split. So it started in Iraq and it split, and part of it went to uh, Syria and part of it went through Jordan and Palestine. And the Syrian branch lasted longer because the, 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 Israeli, the Israeli independence disrupted the operation of the southern branch because the Iraqis wouldn't pump their oil through to Israel. But that pipeline carried on. So that was the sort of swiftest way to get Middle Eastern oil to, yeah. to a European market. And the Americans then tried to break in with Tapline in the 40s and 50s. This was when they started to get involved in Syrian politics. Up to that point, they had no great interest. But when it came to trying to get the way leaves for Tapline... And what's the geography of Tapline? So Tapline starts in the Saudi oil fields right. on, the, uh, on the Gulf Coast, and it goes northwestwards okay. through Jordan and through to Syria, where it, it, it terminates. Uh, the Americans found they got... Uh, actually, I think it... At that point, it ended in Lebanon. So the, the Americans needed to get Jordanian, Syrian and Lebanese approval Buy for this pipeline. Yeah. And they got it from the Lebanese, who said, fantastic, that's free money. Yeah. And they got it from the Jordanians, who had, frankly, needed all the money they could get. And the Syrians were the people who were holding out. And this was right at the end of the 40s. So in 47, essentially, the Americans steered the Syrian election to try to get their candidates to win because the Syrians were behaving awkwardly about the whole thing because of America's involvement with Palestine and supporting um, uh, the Zionists. And then in 1949, it is very likely that they helped overthrow the existing government and they backed a guy called Husni Zaim, who was leader for all of about 130 days before he was murdered. But in that time, he brought, put to a decree saying, I hereby declare Syrian support for the pipeline. Blimey. And that was never reversed. And so Tapline was then built, and in the 1950s, that was, that was the way that Saudi oil fueled Europe. Because up to that point, Saudi's market had been mainly Far Eastern. Right. And the Americans wanted Saudi oil because they wanted Saudi oil to essentially fuel Europe's regeneration after the Second World War. So they needed that as part of the, sort of, part of the Marshall Plan, effectively. Not least also because it was an American company getting the oil out the ground in Saudi. Right. And so in a way, as a way of getting some payback for Marshall, they thought, well, if we're making, pro you know, if we can be selling oil to the Europeans... With money that we're lending to them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Then it's sort of, it, the, the some sort of start to add up. So Syria has always been on this, this kind transit of... Transit route. Been on the transit route. And particularly once Palestine became Israel and given the Arab states' unwillingness to do business with Israel, that has also forced those pipelines to run further north. Because at one point there, w there was a possibility that the tap line could have ended up going to Egypt or even to Israel. Right. But that was, that was sat on. And to what extent do you think the, these pipeline imperatives weigh to this day? Do you think it's a significant part of Russian interest in the region, this notion that they don't want these pipelines across Syria, they don't want an upgrade of TAP because they, of course, want to keep their pipelines going across Central and Eastern Europe and, indeed, they're 
pipeline now to Germany, um, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 about to come. Do you think that I, plays, I think plays a role? Yeah, I do. I think it's important because the Castries at one point wanted to, they wanted an LNG pipeline through Syria and Assad himself stopped that and then stopped to do a deal with the Iranians. I think this is sort of, what, about 2009? So yeah. Before, before uh, the uprising began. Um, but you can see why the Russians wouldn't have wanted that either, because as you say, what they want to do is they want to control as far as possible the sort of oil-producing area of the world, be it up in Siberia right down into the, the Middle East, uh, so that they can supply the, the peripheral areas, whether that's Europe or whether it's the Far East. And they don't want other people affecting their ability, their, their control over that market. Russian policy is more opportunist than that as well, but there is a strategic reason for them to stay in there now to make sure certainly that the Qataris, you know, don't get the upper hand. So you've had tremendous success with this book. Many congratulations. What's your next project, mate? So my next book is called Lords of the Desert. It takes up this idea of rivalry between great powers, where it was Britain and France in the last book, now it's Britain versus America. The French are out, they were booted out in 1946. And the British lost Palestine in 1948. They'd also lost India the year before. The weird thing is that that oddly made the, the Middle East more important for Britain. Britain sort of began to regard actually control of the Middle East as a, as a sort of... Um, it's only remaining claim to be a sort of world yes, power, really. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. It became an end in its own right. And, but, of course, the Americans didn't particularly like that. They didn't like the, the way that the British ran things, that they felt that it was destabilising, that it might let the Russians in. And so there's this conflict between these another pair of allies, allies in many other parts of the world, but here there's quite a lot of tension, and so the book goes into this, and it's got some, some good stuff in it. James Barr, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you've enjoyed this discussion, why not subscribe at lendmeyourear.co.uk or using the iTunes store. Lend me your ear. Conversations worth hearing.